I want you to imagine a scenario with me. You've returned home from the store with object X, something that you were planning to purchase, and uh, what you know is that there is some assembly required. Okay? So you bring object X home. Let me tell you about how I typically do things. Some of you are going to say, well, I can't believe you do that. Others of you are going to say, yep, that's exactly right. So you open the box. You see a pamphlet of paper. You look at it and you say, I don't need that, and you toss it to the side. And you begin putting things together. And you can pretty well figure out how things go together. And at step 37 of your putting things together, you realize you've got this piece. You know where it goes, but it's going to be really hard to wedge it in now after you've put everything else together already. If only you had followed those instructions, right? That, this happens to me all the time. I don't know about you, but I, I see instructions, and that's the first thing I hand to Emily and say, get rid of these for me, please. I don't need those. God has instructions for us. God has a model for us, and we do need to follow the model even when we think we know better, even when we think we can figure this out without following the instructions. God has instructions for us. Today, we're going to talk about God's instructions regarding marriage and singleness, and we're going to see that we do need to follow God's model. He does lay it out for us probably more plainly than we would like for him to lay it out for us. But we need to follow God's model. We're going to start with our scripture memory verse of the month. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. Will you read this with me? 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. Just as God has called them, this is the rule I lay down in all the churches. 1 Corinthians 7, 17. God laid out for us how we are to live. He's given us pretty explicit direction. We're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 7. If you want to start turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Before summer, as we wrapped up spring, we walked through 1 Corinthians 1 through 6. And there was some heavy stuff in 1 Corinthians 1 through 6. What we saw is that the church in Corinth was a church with factions. What that meant is there were churches that said, or people in the church that said, I follow the teaching of Apollos. He knows what he's talking about. I'm following him. And others said, well, I follow the teaching of Paul. And others said, well, I'm better than you all because I follow the teaching of Christ. And they had these sort of battles going on within the church of who do you follow? And the apostle Paul writes to them and says, knock it off. You're to be a church united. You to be a church that stands underneath the scripture, that stands underneath solid teaching and put these factions aside, seek unity instead. The apostle Paul taught about all sorts of things in the first six chapters. We learned about lawsuits. We learned about sexual immorality. We learned about wisdom. We learned about spiritual giftedness. We learned about discernment. Paul went into lots and lots of detail. And in chapter 7, there's a sort of transition. Whereas in chapters 1 through 6, Paul talked somewhat generally about general things that were going on. In chapter 7, he begins to answer some specific questions. You see, what we can glean from what we read in 7 on is that the church in Corinth must have written the Apostle Paul a letter at some point. 
and said, we've got some questions for you, Paul, that we need answered. Here are some of the issues that we're dealing with, and we want you to answer our questions. So that's where we'll pick up in chapter 7. The question that we're going to get to is going to come out of the text, but we will start by reading in chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. So read along in your Bible as I read out loud. Paul writes, Now for the matter you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. So the first seven verses of chapter seven get at a really important issue. In God's model, the gift of sex should only occur within the bounds of marriage. That's God's model. Now, we live in a culture that is sex-crazed. Actually, the Corinthians lived in a culture that was sex-crazed. If you read about sexuality in the city of Corinth, it would, you would think we were living in modern times. If you turn on the TV to watch a football game, every other commercial will probably have either an innuendo or something explicit. That's our culture that we live in. If you go into a public school and talk with the students starting in middle school, they will talk primarily about sex. That's the reality that we live in. That is what dominates our culture. Here's the thing, though. If you walk into a church, a conservative church, they're going to treat sex as if it's this awful, disgusting thing that nobody ever does. That's it's the reality. That is the, the image that we portray. So look at, look at this cultural problem that we have. On one hand, our kids, our young adults, our older adults are being inundated with the world's model of sex. On the other hand, in church, we act as if it's something that never happens. And so what are people to believe? As a church, we must confront the reality that in God's model, sex is a gift, but it only is practiced within the bounds of marriage. I told you that the city of Corinth, they were having problems with this. Here, here's how we can make sense of this. Look at verse one in the text. It says, now for the matters you wrote about. The Corinthian church wrote Paul a letter. And then in our NIV, and I think it's appropriate, you might notice that they've got quotes. Paul is quoting something that they wrote in their letter. The Corinthians wrote to Paul, it looks like, and said, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. They wrote to Paul, they said, look, we've got this big problem in society. We go outside, we're inundated with sex. And so we have come up with the solution, Paul. Here's our solution. Sex is off limits. 
And the Apostle Paul is writing and saying, no. No. Because the reality is that the gift of sex, properly practiced in the bounds of, mar- of marriage, is a beautiful gift. The gift of sex is beautiful, but also dangerous. And this is what the Apostle Paul is writing about. Paul has this quote. He's quoted the Corinthians. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. No. That's, Paul, Paul is writing against that. What Paul is saying, and what he goes on to say, is he says, if you take that stance, if you say no sex under any circumstances, you are creating a culture of sexual immorality. And that's verse 2. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The gift of sex is both beautiful and dangerous. It is something that God has given to a married couple. It is something, though, that if practiced out of bounds, leads to disaster. It's very dangerous. There are all sorts of things that are dangerous in this world. But if you're careful and you do them the right way, they become far less dangerous. I fly airplanes. A lot of people think that's dangerous. It's actually safer than driving, like significantly safer than driving. But people think of it as dangerous. If you follow the rules, you're completely safe. People don't get hurt following the rules. Same way here. It is beautiful and dangerous. Going on in verses 3 through 6, though, the Apostle Paul continues. And the point that he makes in verses 3 through 6 is that sex, when properly practiced, involves mutual submission in a way that is truly countercultural. I want to sort of dig into these verses, because these are the sorts of verses that typically we just read over and move on because we don't want to deal with them. But we're going to deal with them. Because there is some real truth here that we need to understand. The first thing it says is the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And likewise, the wife to her husband. The word here for duty is actually not a strong enough word. In the Greek, it's actually debt. That'd be a better translation. We don't like to talk about debt in marriage, right? I mean, that feels like, oh, well, what are we making marriage out to be? If I owe my spouse a debt, that, that feels a little weird. That's, that's probably a better translation. Because in marriage, there is a covenant. You come together in an agreement for each other. And so the command is to fulfill the debt owed. Husbands and wives have made a covenant together, and they owe each other have a responsibility to each other. That's the reality that the Apostle Paul is saying. But he goes on and he goes deeper. Because in verse 4 he says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Okay? Probably everyone in Corinth, this, all the guys in Corinth are saying, yep, that sounds about right. And then Paul really, really goes counterculture. Because he says, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body. This is like riots in the streets. 
and in the city of Corinth to say this. Sex properly practiced involves mutual submission, completely giving oneself to the other person. Sex is an outward expression, okay? It is an outward expression of an inward reality. And this is really important. Sex is intended to be an outward expression of an inward reality of mutual submission. That's God's model for marriage. God's model for marriage is that you look out for the other person and you give up all of your needs in exchange for meeting the needs of the other person. And that happens in every aspect of marriage. And what Paul is saying is that sex is a representation of that. Our culture likes to go around and say things like, my body, it's my body, I get to do with it what I want. I get to make the choices I want because it's my body. The apostle Paul says, no, it's not. Mutual, complete submission. Paul goes on, though, and he, he actually says that there is a place for abstinence. Abstinence does actually have a place. Abstinence is a gift that is given to some. First of all, married couples may choose to abstain from sexual activity under some very, very strict conditions. Look at what the conditions are in the text. By mutual consent, in other words, one spouse can't decide to withhold from the other spouse. That's unbiblical. By mutual consent, for a time, the idea there is that it's an agreed upon specified period of time for the purpose of prayer. Those are really, really rigid conditions that the Apostle Paul puts on abstinence within a marriage. This tells us something. This tells us that sex is supposed to be normative for married couples. It is a normal behavior that is supposed to take place. But in verse 7, abstinence is a gift that's given to some. Some people, as a gift from God, will abstain from sex. Paul's going to go on later, and he's going to explain these are unmarried people, and it is something that God gives. And Paul actually makes the claim in verse 7 that that is something that God had given him. At this point in his life, the apostle Paul does not appear to be married. Um, Likely he was married. There's some other indications in the text without going into a lot of detail. And since he voted at Christ's, or at Stephen's stoning since he was present as part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were all married. So it seems that Paul was likely married, but here he's not. And he says that he's abstained. The point that Paul is making is that abstinence is a gift given to some, not to husbands and wives. So let me put this all together into an action step. We live in a culture that tells us a number of things about sex. Let me give you some of the things that the culture says. Our culture would tell you that um, you should have the ability to have sex with whoever you want, and largely whenever you want. That is a cultural norm. Um, God's will, God's model, is sex only takes place within the bounds of marriage. There's just no way around that. This whoever you want, whenever you want, 
is in complete rebellion to God's model. But beyond that, our culture largely thinks of sex as being as something for myself, something for me to enjoy myself. God's model is mutual submission, putting the other first. So my action step, carefully evaluate your attitude towards sex. How have you allowed the world's culture to transform your picture of sex? We need to evaluate it. We need to make sure that we're following God's model in the bounds of marriage as a regular natural activity within marriage, but only in the bounds of marriage. Paul goes on, though, and so we're going to go on in verses 8 and 9. It says, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command. I'm going to stop actually there at verse 9. Sorry, I'm not going to go into 10. Let me just start at verse, stop at verse 9 for a second. In God's model, there's purpose to both marriage and singleness. In God's model, there is purpose to marriage and singleness. Paul addresses a, a fairly broad group here. He says, to the unmarried and the widows. So, let's talk about this. Widows or widowers, we know who those are. Those are individuals who have lost a spouse. Okay? Unmarried here is a little bit more difficult for us to make sense of. See, later, the Apostle Paul, if you look ahead to verse 25, we're not going to cover that verse today, but if you look ahead to verse 25, the Apostle Paul writes to virgins in particular. Unmarried, in verse 8, is likely people who have had a divorce. That's likely the case as we look through the text in context. And so speaking to widows and unmarried, so these are individuals who at one point had a spouse. Paul says, it is good for them to stay unmarried. I want to emphasize something. Paul does not say it is best. He does not say it is better. He says, it is good. What Paul is saying is that there is purpose in singleness. Singleness has good purpose in God's economy. You can have a meaningful life without being married. That's really what the Apostle Paul is saying. Actually, the word good here can mean like morally good, but it doesn't have to mean that. It can also mean... Um, sort of like fulfillingly good, like life can be good. Paul is saying your life can be good in an unmarried state. However, if you can't control yourself, you can marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Marriage has a good purpose in God's economy. Both singleness and marriage have purpose in God's economy. It's completely acceptable to live life unmarried. 
it's completely acceptable to live life married. Our verse was verse 17, 1 Corinthians 17, said each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. In other words, however it is that God has called you to live, whether that's single or whether that's married, live the way God's called you to live. I would take this and I would say, if you are single, don't spend your every waking hour looking for a spouse. If God brings you a spouse, great. If not, great. If you're married, put some time into your marriage. Don't let that go away. In God's economy, both singleness and marriage have a purpose. I think sometimes we tend to get uh, ourselves all wrapped up in knots. See, what was the command that was given back in the garden to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Okay? That was a command given to Adam and Eve. That command is given to mankind in general and not to you specifically necessarily. I think this is really important. Some people are called to live their life single. Some people are called to live their life without children. And it's okay. In fact, you can have a fulfilled life in that way. In God's model, there's purpose for singleness. In God's model, there is purpose for marriage. Just to be really clear, because there's all sorts of underlying baggage that we could deal with. In this text, in verse 9, Paul is pretty clearly telling us one of the purposes of marriage. One of the purposes of marriage is because people have sexual desire and marriage is God's way of fulfilling that sexual desire. That's really what verse 9 says. Does that mean that's the only purpose in marriage? Absolutely not. If you want to go to Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 24, we learn other purposes of marriage. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is a savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands in everything. A second purpose of marriage beyond just sexual fulfillment is it models Christ's relationship with the church. Marriage has a sexual reason. It has a modeling of Christ's relationship with the church. It has all sorts of other reasons as we read through the scripture in terms of providing relationship and of providing opportunities for people to uh, grow. Iron sharpens iron. Marriage has lots of purposes, but here the apostle Paul is pretty blunt. One of the purposes of marriage is to allow for sexual expression. But that doesn't mean that everybody is called to marriage. In God's model, there's purpose in both marriage and singleness. So let me give you an action step. Consider your status. Married, single, married, unmarried, married, divorced, married, widow. How are you using your current status? The point the Apostle Paul really makes in chapter 7 and we're going to hammer this in over the next couple of weeks. It's going to take us a couple of weeks to get through all of chapter 7. The point that the Apostle Paul really makes is stop focusing on wanting to go from single to married or married to single or 
all of these changes, slave to free or free to slave, stop worrying about all of that. Start living for Jesus. How are you using your status for Christ? Paul writes, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, to the remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is believing and is willing to live with him, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. All sorts of baggage to unpack there. The point that I see, the point of emphasis. In God's model, the covenant entered through marriage matters. Marriage matters to God. It really, truly matters. Paul starts off with a command to the married. And he says, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus spoke explicitly about divorce and about the importance of the marriage covenant. And Jesus gave it pretty plain and simple. Divorce should not be normative. Divorce should not be the standard by which we live. In Corinth, it was easy to get a divorce. Actually, a lot like our society here. Um, it was uncommon, or not uncommon from what I read, for people to have as many as 20 different marriages in a lifetime in the city of Corinth. It was easy. So when Paul says, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, he's citing Jesus and he's saying, a wife shouldn't separate from her husband. And a husband shouldn't separate from his wife. Really, Jesus' command is pretty simple. Don't go getting divorces. This isn't normal. It's not the way we're supposed to live. The marriage covenant matters to God. Marriage matters to God. When problems come up, the solution is resolution. The solution is reconciliation. Now, are there situations where divorce is warranted? Yes. Jesus talks about that. Paul's going to talk about that here in a minute. There are situations where divorce is warranted. But don't let those situations take your focus away from God's ideal. God's ideal is no divorce. In verses 12 through 13, we learn um, of an interesting question. The more I thought about this question, it sort of makes sense to me. Some apparently started asking this question. Imagine I get married before I know Jesus. That would have been the case for a lot of the Corinthians. And I go through life. At some point, I come to know Jesus. But my spouse doesn't. They never come to know Jesus. At this point, 
the most significant aspect of my life, my relationship with Jesus, is something I no longer share with my spouse. So wouldn't it make sense for me to leave my spouse since we no longer share the most significant aspect of my life? That's the question that it seems like was asked of Paul. And Paul's answer is actually pretty profound. He says that's not a reason for a divorce. You might think it is, but it's not. Paul says a call to Christ doesn't negate your marriage covenant. The marriage covenant still matters. The call to Christ doesn't negate the marriage covenant because the general principle still holds. In general, no divorce. So what are the conditions for divorce? Adultery. (coughs) Adultery is a condition under which divorce is permitted. And we're going to get to the next one in verses 15. So, let's read verse 15 and 16. It says, But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The other condition is abandonment. So here's the theological principle. Divorce is permitted if the marriage covenant has already been broken. If somebody has committed adultery, they've broken the marriage covenant. If they have abandoned the person, they've broken the marriage covenant. In other words, divorce is permitted if divorce has already happened. You can legally get the paperwork done if the damage is already done. That's really what the principle is that's coming out here. Because the marriage covenant matters to God. Ultimately, why? Because the marriage covenant may provide an opportunity for evangelism. This unsafe person who now you feel like shares nothing in common with you because your loyalty is to Jesus. You, in fact, may be able to witness to them in a profound way. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying in verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You don't know the testimony that you may have, the impact that you may have on your spouse. You may be able to lead them. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through the wife. Sanctified doesn't always mean saved. It can mean set apart. You want a close encounter experience with the Holy Spirit? Marry someone who has the Holy Spirit dwelling within him. That's really what Paul's saying, is if you live your life, if you live your life in a way that shows the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you, you may be able to lead your unbelieving spouse to Christ. And certainly your kids are going to notice. That's the end of verse 14. Otherwise your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Again, not saved, set apart. They are able to have a close encounter experience with the God of the universe through your life. The principle is really simple. God has a model for marriage. That model is that sex is only practiced within the bounds of marriage. That model is that marriage matters. That model is that singleness has a place 
in God's economy. We need to make God's model our priority. I want you to evaluate your priorities. Is God's model your priority? I had uh, in May, one of my PhD students graduated and her research, her work, was exploring the way somebody's priorities influenced the decisions they made in the classroom. And so it was really interesting. We would interview people and we'd talk with them about what their priorities were. And then we'd go into the classroom and we'd watch. And sure enough, almost every decision they made could be completely explained because of how they had prioritized things in their life. Your priorities matter. For those who have been hurt by broken marriages, God offers forgiveness. He offers restoration. He offers peace. But our priorities must always be on God's model. He has it for us. I can't tell you the number of times I've had to take apart something because I didn't follow the directions. And I was left with one piece and there was no way to get it in without undoing four or five steps or four or five screws I'd already put in. Thankfully, those are over minor things. God gives us a model. Let's follow it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for marriage. I thank you that you have provided us a model for what marriage should look like. A model for sex. The proper way to practice things that you've given us. I pray that we would honor you in our marriages, in our lives that we would learn mutual submission, that we would learn to honor singleness, that we would learn to honor marriage. Father, I pray that you would lead us in your model. Guide us. Forgive us for ways where we have broken your model, where we've gone and done it our own way. We all have. Help us to make your model the way we operate, normative in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.